Okay, today is Tuesday, July 11, 2023. Welcome to a special summer episode of The Regimen where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. So I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice and clinical research at the URI College of Pharmacy. And I also serve as the academic collaborations officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. The opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and guests don't represent the opinions of the United States government, the Rhode Island Department of Health, the University of Rhode Island, nor Brown University. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Brandon Marshall, Professor of Epidemiology here at the Brown University School of Public Health and the founding director of the People, Place, and Health Collective, or the PPHC, at Brown. Dr. Marshall's work focuses on substance use epidemiology, harm reduction research, and the social, environmental, and structural determinants of health of drug-using populations. He's got two dozen people conducting research to improve the health and well-being of people who use drugs, and I would say that extends to all people, so it's great to study uh, marginalized and vulnerable people to help the entire population. Uh, I encourage our listeners to join me in following the work of the PPHC on their Medium page and Twitter account. Maybe you'll have a Threads one of these days. It's always growing. So uh, Brandon is the principal investigator of multiple NIH-funded projects. We were just talking about a couple of those before we recorded here, including the Rhode Island Prescription and Injection Drug Use Study, or RAPIDS, and Provident, which is a randomized trial to prevent overdose deaths in Rhode Island. Additionally, he's the scientific director of PreventOverdoseRI.org, uh, Rhode Island's drug overdose award-winning drug overdose surveillance and information dashboard. Encourage everyone to go there and tell your state to do it too. Um, and we met uh, long ago, it seems now, in 2015, as we were both uh, part of a group of experts. We continue to serve as expert advisors to the Rhode Island Governor's Overdose Prevention Intervention Task Force. And somehow, between all of this management, he's not only been able to go on vacation, uh, but he's also authored or co-authored over 300 peer-reviewed publications in two book chapters and found time to be here with us today. So anything we missed, Brandon, tell us more. That was fabulous. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's great. We've had podcast guests. Uh, so you know, we know each other going way back here. And uh, definitely your work has been hugely influential on uh, my work working with our colleagues, Jody Rich and Tracy Green, who uh, Tracy's been on the pod with our discussion of buprenorphine induction in pharmacies. But a huge interest that I have and one of the reasons for this podcast, not just public health, but also pharmacists' involvement in public health and really the, you know, the, uh, the overdose crisis that we're all in here. And so some of those solutions that I've written about and I know you've written about include uh, drug decriminalization, pharmacy-based non-prescription syringe access. We had T. Stephen Jones on, who I'm sure you know. Uh, we were just talking before about a pharmacist who does drug checking. So some of those episodes are out now as part of overall harm reduction or risk reduction strategies. So one of those big strategies that we're proud to have uh, legally authorized in Rhode Island then exists in many, many places in the world are overdose prevention centers or OPCs. So you've been studying this for a long time. Tell us, give our audience a little uh, snippet of what their role is in mitigating the consequences of our unsafe illegal drug supply. Sure, thanks Jeff. So overdose prevention centers are places where people can go to use pre-obtained controlled substances. Uh, they are common, as you mentioned, around the world. There's more than 200 
overdose prevention centers in 14 countries. And the first opened in Switzerland in the 1980s. So oh, this wow. is not a new intervention. So I thought it was globally. just Canada. <laughs> no, no, definitely. The first one opened in Canada in 2003. Uh, so more than 20 years in Canada yeah. as well. But I want to highlight there's a lot more that goes on than just the immediate supervision of drug use, which is a key public health goal that allows professionals working at the site to intervene in the event of an overdose and save someone's life. But there's a lot more that goes on, a whole suite of wraparound services, access to addiction treatment, and social services like housing programs, connections to care, healthcare, primary care, uh, even things like showers, you know, food services and so forth. So although we think and we spend a lot of time focused on the supervision and the immediate overdose prevention, overdose prevention centers ultimately offer a lot more to people who use them. So it's really what your, you know, the name of your group, the people, um, the people places, I'm going to get this wrong now. I might have to edit this. We'll just keep it. The People Place and Health Collective. Uh, you know, when we talk about overdose and, and all the work we've done with uh, the governor's task force, uh, you know, it's, it's about you need place-based services to help the people. So you have to go to the places where the people are who need the services. And you can't just reverse overdoses and, and, and wait for the next overdose, right? We need to address the social and structural determinants of health, which again, I think, which is so innovative about, about your work and the work we're doing here is to say, yeah, people need showers, they need care, they need trust in our healthcare systems because so often, uh, and I'm sure in the folks that you're, you and your team have interviewed, people will say, I don't want to go to that pharmacy or I don't want to go to the emergency department because I was treated badly there. That's right. And so I think why I'm so interested in this population is and in, in, in infused in my teaching too, and perhaps you as well, is to say, if you can take care of somebody who is at their lowest, and also realize that it's the systems and structures that have caused that. You're going to pay attention not only to that person in front of you, but also the community that they come from, which inherently is all of our communities, right? Um, so I think that that's what's, that's what's so fascinating about the work you do. Um, so you have, you, you have uh, published about OPC outcomes for over a decade. Um, tell us how you became interested in them um, and why you've sustained this for so long you know, with this great outcome, but you know, it's been a long time. Yeah, more than a decade for me personally. You know, I did my PhD in Vancouver, Canada, and I was fortunate to serve on the team that evaluated the first overdose prevention center that opened in that city in 2003. Um, but before that, I was actually volunteering for a youth harm reduction organization called YouthCo. It still exists today. Oh, great. It's one of Canada's largest youth-oriented harm reduction programs. We did HIV and hepatitis C prevention programming, education, and syringe services for people aged 14 to 26. Mm. And that was a volunteer interest of mine as I was doing a master's in epidemiology. And that actually drove my ultimate interest in harm reduction research. So I became fascinated in working with this population and young people in particular who were using drugs. And that's how I came across and found this research team and got connected to my PhD supervisor, Thomas Kerr, who was leading the evaluation. So in some ways I kind of stumbled into it through mm -hmm. that volunteer opportunity, which I think is common with a lot of students. Um, but from that point on, it's driven my passion for this research. And I'm so pleased to see now 10 years later, Rhode Island moving forward with overdose prevention centers and being one, a leader and one of the first in the nation to do so. So it's sort of interesting, you know, you 
probably could have gone anywhere after your PhD, and I believe you went came to Brown directly from your PhD? Through, or? by way of New York City. Okay. Yeah, oh, right, right. I did a postdoc at Columbia in 2011. And, and what yeah. did you, what was that, what were you studying there? I was working with a person named Sandra Golea. He's now the Dean of Public Health yeah. at um, Boston University School of Public Health. I wanted to work with him because he is a substance use epidemiologist, but also had expertise in other domains of public health, um, mental health, trauma, gun violence, for example. So I wanted to broaden my own understanding and view of harm reduction and drug use as it affects some of these other health issues. But ultimately, I was drawn to Rhode Island because of the amazing work that's done in our state focused on addressing the overdose crisis and harm reduction. So that's ultimately what brought me here. I love Rhode Island. I love doing this work here and interacting every day with people like yourself and the amazing community that we get to work with. Yeah, it was great talking uh, before the record about how, you know, people that we know seem to always be around. You know, I've been doing this for a decade myself, and I, and it's it's just fascinating to see sort of the same names. They might be at different institutions or on different grants, um, but still that same dedication. And all this through a pandemic and through, mm-hmm. you know, r- r- remarkable uh, changes, not only in, in policy, but changes in um I mean, just a consistently worsening national and state epidemic. You know, one of the things, you know, we talk about harm reduction in naloxone, and we were, I helped with making naloxone as available as possible, uh, but we still saw a record number of overdose deaths. And so it's, um, and particularly among um, even more marginalized groups or ethnic, you know, ethnic groups like Hispanic overdoses, uh, people who identify as Hispanic. Um, almost a 50% increase in overdose deaths. So we still have so much work to do, despite the amazing data we have available and Prevent Overdose RI uh, and all the grant funding. Um, you know, we still have a lot to go. And I think this is where OPCs come into play, is that we have to have a sort of all of the above um, aspect to it, just as you described what happens in the OPCs and all these other services. We really need to both integrate, I think, identification and treatment and compassionate care of folks who use drugs into all of our health care. Mm-hmm. And then we need to provide all the health care where those folks are. Um, and OPCs, I think, is that sort of brick and mortar and or mobile OPCs where we can provide those um, types of things. Um, so I briefly mentioned that we were the first state to pass and extend laws and regulations for a state-sanctioned OPC. Um, we call them harm reduction centers in, in our statute. Um, so Philadelphia famously tried and, and didn't succeed in the courts with their safe house project. And um, we've seen publications of our colleagues west of the Mississippi. There's a lot of unsanctioned OPCs I'm sure you're familiar with. And then we were just talking about the two OPCs in New York City. Um, so Rhode Island is poised to open theirs in 2024. Tell us, you know, we talked a little bit about your journey. Tell us what you know about those other OPCs, how they were successful, and what barriers still exist to, um, to implementing these OPCs. Yeah, so the first two publicly recognized overdose prevention centers opened in New York City in November 2021. And due to the incredible work of some existing organizations there who were providing certain service programs to people in Washington Heights and East Harlem, which is the neighborhood where the two OPCs are. Um, They are incredible organizations that do outstanding work. I had the opportunity to visit their OPCs and we're now collaborating on a research study, federally funded research study, to evaluate the outcomes of OPCs. 
And they are what I call Cadillac models of OBCs. <laughs> they offer a huge amount of innovative services, highly integrated healthcare for people who are using the facility, drug checking, you know, you name it, it's there at their services. Mm. Um, so those are the two models we have publicly recognized in the US. As you mentioned, Rhode Island was the first state to authorize OPCs through legislation. You know, looking back, that was due to, I think, many years of incredibly strong advocacy from our harm reduction and recovery communities coming forward to explain to the public and to policymakers why these facilities are important and what impact they might have on the state overdose crisis. So I think that had a huge impact on our progress here. In addition to some strong and progressive and bold leadership um, mm-hmm. from members of civil society across Rhode Island and the health department too, who supported and led a lot of this work through the regulations that we now have as part of the law. So I was really blown away, honestly, by seeing all of that come together in Rhode Island to provide us, I hope, with a strong you know, infrastructure and regulatory system from which to build some of the nation's first publicly recognized OPCs. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, states that we think, you know, who also where uh, there's significant um, overdose uh, crises like California, you know, famously, lots of advocates were looking to open OPCs in California and the governor vetoed it. And I don't know if that is related to presidential ambitions when our current president was uh, President Biden was the first to have federal funding for uh, harm reduction in general. Mm. And of course, your federal grant. Um, one of the first to, to study uh, OPCs. I mean, what do you think, you know, what would you say to our listeners to say, uh, I, I think I always try to say like policy takes time, mm-hmm. but it also takes persistence. And what would you say to folks to, to stay, you know, to be persistent until these things um, stay open or to look past what may be a temporary opinion to say we would keep fighting for these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. I would say persistence is key and then be willing to speak with anyone who will listen to you. That's Mm. what I learned from the advocates here in Rhode Island that were able to push this over the finish line. You know, meet with anyone, even if they're initially oppositional. And that's a huge role that researchers can play in this, is explain what the scientific evidence in other countries has shown. And those could be challenging conversations to people who are very skeptical or downright oppositional. But by having small inroads and having one-on-one conversations over time, you really can move the needle. You know, I remember we had a We hosted at Brown a um, presentation and panel on OPCs many years ago now. It was at the medical school Mm -hmm. and was very well attended. I think a lot of people in that audience, that might have been the first time they had ever heard of an OPC. We had an incredible panel of people with lived experience, giving the research perspective, the public health perspective. And I think events like that matter. You know, they did change some minds in that room. And I still hear that for some people that was, you know, a point in their shift hmm. in thinking about this uh, issue. Sometimes people who are oppositional and change their mind are the, you know, it's the, you know, I don't know if this is an epi term, but the reform smoker <laughs> kind of thing to say, you know, the people who are doing something and then they stop doing it for good or bad. Sometimes it's bad where they start railing against effective solutions. We see that in the work we do um, sometimes in policy circles, especially. But I think oftentimes people will say, I was opposed to this and now I was convinced otherwise. 
Um, it might be one event. It might be multiple events. I, I like the idea of talk to people, maintain your focus, know the evidence. Um, and I think what's also, I think, unique to you and your work is that you're devoted to involving people who are going to be served by these centers mm-hmm. or who would have been served by those centers. The recovery community is very important. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important to um, it's important to find those people who are oppositional and actually you know, people are willing to talk. And I think we have this sort of um, divided mindset to say, well, it's just going to be Brandon and Tracy and I who are going to talk about this thing. And we have to say, well, don't do us versus them. We all are part of the same community. We mm-hmm. all are served by these things. We all benefit from it. You know, um, let's talk about those benefits or find out what is the actual thing. Maybe it's not what they're saying. Maybe it's something else. So then you go to those one-on-one conversations because once they switch, now you've got another advocate and you, you build um, you build momentum through each of those conversations. Um, so let's talk about your research, actually. So this is, is phenomenal. You've, you've got this federal grant to study OPCs, the, the New York ones, and the one opening in Rhode Island. Um, what are the aims and what's your team doing? What do you hope to accomplish from it? So yeah, thanks, Jeff. This is an exciting uh, four-year study funded by the National Institutes of Health to evaluate OPCs in New York City and Rhode Island. We're doing this work with colleagues at New York University who are amazing um, and are working with On Point, the organization in New York City that operates two OPCs, as I mentioned. We've got four aims, actually. It's a very large, (laughs) ambitious project. We're going to look at the effects of OPCs on people who use them through what we call a prospective cohort study. We'll be enrolling people who use the OPC and people who use other syringe service programs to look at things like overdose rates, access to addiction treatment, and other health outcomes over time as they use or don't use these facilities. A second aim is to examine how the neighborhoods are impacted by OPCs. Mm -hmm. So we'll be doing systematic evaluations of the neighborhoods surrounding an OPCs, getting information on syringe litter, public drug use, and other, you know, measures that are important from a community perspective. Um, The third aim is qualitative in nature. We've got qualitative researchers, not myself, I'm a quantitative (laughs) person, but other colleagues will be doing qualitative research to understand in more deep, uh, in more deeply, you know, what are the program and operational contexts that drive barriers to use of an OPC Mm -hmm. or success. And then finally, the fourth aim is around cost. What are the cost Mm -hmm. of these services, but then what are the benefits? We hypothesize that use of an OPC will avert emergency department visits due to preventable overdoses, uh, other very expensive conditions to treat like endocarditis, for example. And so we have some health economists on our team who will help us calculate both the cost of operating an OPC in both jurisdictions and then the healthcare savings that accrue as a result of using an OPC and hopefully feed that information back to policymakers. Yeah, we always talk about the underfunding of public health, which is still a chronic problem. That's a different podcast yeah. at some point. But I think it's you always have to follow the money. You know, I always say mm-hmm. I wish that when I was training as a pharmacist, I knew more about pharmacoeconomics. Um, this is sort of public health economics, and I think that's really important to say. It may you may have all the evidence to show that lives are saved, or lives are improved, or quality of life improves from those from those studies, or people want to use them. But unless you show that there's neutral or perhaps even cost savings, 
people aren't going to open them or they're not the states are not going to open them to show that so i think that's an important element um one thing you said was doing the neighborhood assessment so we'll get to the question about the role of pharmacists but it's sort of interesting i i would encourage you if possible to talk to pharmacists at pharmacies surrounding mm-hmm. these sites because mm-hmm. both in new york and rhode island we just had our podcast on non-prescription syringe access from pharmacies um you know it'd be interesting to see if that changes right and um, maybe even interview the pharmacist there to say, what do you think about this here? Because that's something that exists around the world, right? I mean, we talk about pharmacists in Canada and Scotland and Switzerland and Norway. They dispense methadone, and they're surprised when we don't do that here for OUD um, yet. That's another, that's another, <laughs> that's another podcast. Um, so yeah, what so what do you what do you think about that about like talking to pharmacies because you have this robust center of healthcare as far as we know there's no pharmacy and there's very few examples of pharmacies being aligned or near even nearby drug user health or sewer service programs you know it sounds like there's an opportunity here for OPCs but right now there's sort of a greater neighborhood aspect what what would you say to that certainly i think that's a fantastic idea to understand their perspectives mm-hmm. working with this population before and after an OPC yeah. opens could be very very interesting um, you know one thing that we're going to be evaluating in Rhode Island is how far people travel to use mm-hmm. the OPC mm-hmm. in most places around the world they are opened in uh, urban locations like New York City, where there's a lot of people who are at risk for overdose in a relatively small geographic region, the vast majority of people you know, walk to the OPC mm. to use it. Here in Rhode Island, that might be a bit different. This is designed to be a statewide service. And so you might see people coming from farther afield to use maybe not the consumption room, but drug checking programs mm. or other services that are available. And I think we should think through, you know, what are the ways in which pharmacists or pharmacies could help extend the service that the OPC is providing statewide. So those kinds of use patterns, I think, are going to be important for us to evaluate when an OPC does open here in the state. Well, and also referral. I mean, again, we're talking about a population who's, um, you know, I would say some some at least slight majority have cell phones, but they may not have minutes or they may not have access to data. You know, we, we're sitting here at the School of Public Health. Of course, we have Wi-Fi. I can log on and do those things. This is not available to the folks who may be using this. I think the, you know, I actually did a, right before the pandemic, I got IRB approval for a study to hand out cards to people who were um, buying non-prescription syringes, presumably for drug use, but really anybody. And we put a card in to say, you can actually get free HIV testing, Hep C testing, mm-hmm. uh, free syringes, free syringe pickup from our statewide SSP called Encore, and so it's this sort of interesting thing about I think OPCs fit into that to say pharmacies should be referring folks, yeah. right? Yes, um, exactly. it's not that they don't want to sell syringes. Some pharmacists do, some pharmacists don't. But to say pharmacists really are interested in helping people. And right now the structure isn't that they can provide it at the pharmacy, but if they could refer them to this place and say take this. Take the 55 to, you know, to here, to there, to get to this place. Um, it might be an effective marketing technique, even if it's just right. one-on-one. Um, and I think that will also help destigmatize those things. But it starts with those, it starts with education. And yeah. um, ever since I knew the, the original law authorizing this past, I teach a class called Opioid Use Disorder. And um, my students were very fascinated by this concept. Again, sort of like they've never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. Where would they hear about it otherwise? Um, but they were interested and they did a presentation 
on having this be a clinical practice site, right, for pharmacy, nursing, social work, medical students, public health students. Um, what do you see as the educational possibilities of the site? You know, it's different than a hospital or a clinic where you get asked, you know, can the student come observe me? Entirely different population, lots of healthcare stigma. Where do we find the balance between providing this as a as an educational opportunity, an opportunity for service and for learning, um, and and balance down the needs and and the the agency of the folks using it? Yeah, that's such a great question. So you know, fundamentally, OBCs are environments grounded in love and respect for people mm. who use drugs that has to be central to the success of their operation. So anyone volunteering in or working in an OPC is going to learn how to provide compassionate, destigmatizing, and accessible health care and care to people who use drugs. So that's uh, an educational opportunity inherent in the design, mm-hmm. I would say, of an OPC that is unique because you are seeing the complete person that includes but is not limited to their drug use, right? So that is an unprecedented and unique, I think, way in which these educational opportunities present themselves. There's other aspects that provide a lot of important educational insights in terms of the way overdose symptomatology is managed, for example. Mm -hmm. Talking with people at OnPoint, they've learned a ton about how to more appropriately respond to overdoses using oxygen more often Mm -hmm. than naloxone, Mm -hmm. honestly, in this kind of environment, and now responding to other substances like xylazine present additional challenges. So OPCs also provide those kind of opportunities to improve our understanding of the overdose response in addition to to providing access to healthcare and other ancillary services. So uh, all that said though, at the end of the day, it still needs to be very low barrier and easy to access. So we can't add on too much from a research perspective or from a training perspective, really the the service use and making it accessible has to come first, but then we can think about, I think, layering on some of these other opportunities. It's interesting, I was really, you know, it, it's it's interesting when you talk about their experience in, in uh, responding to overdoses that we always talk about talking to people with lived or living experience who, who know how to respond to overdose, right? right? They know how to titrate naloxone. They don't have access to, to oxygen, so they do other things that yeah. are effective. But it's hard to study. You know, this is the problem with research is we want it to be as real an environment as possible, but then we can't really figure out what the intervention is. But it just goes to show that for some of these conditions, we just, we just don't know, right? right? You've got to make a place make a safe place, make a, a place based on compassion and love and say, now this is how we're going to find out the information to further spread that, to further build more of these and build them in the right way. You know, I worked on in hospitals and in intensive care units and medical units and on consult services, and we'd sometimes have 10 people. And I always think, you know, I have my students, and there's the med students, and there's the fellow, and there's all these, you know, 10 people walk into a room and the person's like, why are you asking me about my sexual history, right? So not only is it intimidating to have 10 people in masks coming in your room asking you questions and taking notes, now imagine you have to be asked all these personal questions or that you're really going there to use pre-obtained drugs. That's not the situation where you want 10 people in. So it's an interesting, we can actually build from the ground up a whole different kind of educational experience that actually I would say 
should go into our existing structures so that we have, you know, why aren't hospitals and clinics based on compassionate love? Maybe we need to ask that yeah. question, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe we can say with that person-centered, holistic agency, person has agency approach, we can let learn lessons from OPCs and apply them to the rest of our healthcare uh, field. And part of that, I think, includes edu- offering educational opportunities so those people become those leaders, right, in those things. Just like you were a volunteer. You yeah. learn that seeing, you know, on the ground, seeing what's happening there. I think the other thing we can learn, too, is uh, this idea of, like, when is the most effective, reachable moment mm. for folks? Mm-hmm. You know, so much of our existing overdose response involves trying to reach people when they're in withdrawal or feeling terrible or, you know, in an emergency department or correctional environment. Oh, and yeah. you just have to wonder, like, is this the optimal time to reach people to try to engage them in additional services? OPCs kind of flip that script, right? Mm-hmm. It's the one time or the very few times where we can access, engage people, you know, when there may be that opportunity to have more productive relationship building and mm. conversations with people to engage them in those other services. And I've been thinking a lot lately about what that means for these other overdose response programs right, right. that we rely on in emergency departments and correctional settings. So that's the other thing too, right? What can we learn from OPCs that we could adapt for other overdose response interventions? Yeah, so it's almost like that package of, of things at least that could be offered or referred to. We should, you know, I'm, I'm entranced by the, and maybe we'll do it in Rhode Island, is New Jersey uh, provides buprenorphine from paramedics, right? And I think there's another state that does it. So some, but it's only after they've been reversed by this EMS person who may or may not be res- respectful or respected by the person based on previous experience. Yeah. But they're in withdrawal. The best way to treat withdrawal is buprenorphine, but maybe they've got considerations there. Um, one of the things in our study that we found uh, comparing pharmacy-based initiation of buprenorphine is the majority of our folks who participated um, were not in withdrawal, right? Yeah. They they used, yeah. they said, I don't want to use again. I know if I use again, I'm at high risk of our unsafe illicit drug supply, increasingly um, unknown substances causing long and short-term problems like xylazine. And they would talk about our program to say, I don't have to walk past a security guard to get my meds, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the current uh, you know medication maintenance program that we have in other uh, um, opioid treatment programs. Are families allowed to come to the OPC? Ooh, this is a good question. Because that's Not, yeah. I'm just thinking about my about my yeah. our experience to say. Gee, you know, I worked in a community pharmacy and I trained lots of folks and it's sort of you brought your family in and we hope and it, during COVID it was everyone can get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So the federal government recognized that, said, you know how to give shots, literally a one shot deal. You get all those services there at the pharmacy. But for our sort of treatment programs or even drug user health programs, I'm not sure what the role of families are there. That's interesting. You know, I know. People often use an OPC with their partner, right? Okay. Um, with their spouse or with their friends. So there's a lot of that kind of use pattern that you hmm. typically see. You know, one of when you ask people why are you using an OPC, one of the most common responses is to get away from the uh, violent drug market. You right. know, to get away from sort of street level. Um, outdoor violent activity that can put particularly women and gender diverse people at significant risk. And so 
that is one of the primary reasons that we see people electing to use an OPC either on their own or with a partner present. Um, I, with families, I know less about that. That's something that maybe we should add to the research study, come to think of it. Yeah, you know? just, it's just, it's interesting to say, if you've got, you know, I, I yeah, again, I, I've got, you know, I've got kids. And so I think about, and, you know, we're going on vacation. It's like this whole different thing. When you go on vacation yourself or I go on a business trip, it's just me going through the airport. And now you have to think, I have to feed and clothe and clean and keep these folks, you know, all these other people safe. And so if safety is the aspect, you probably, why would you leave your family? And it becomes, again, particularly women who will child care. You know, we think about this with jobs and all those other structural determinants of health. Why don't you have a job? Because I can't go on transportation because I can't X, Y, Z. If these places are places you can walk to, maybe that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting thing. Um, it, it's just it's just an interesting thought to say, here's the safe place for families, and now you can provide other kinds of services there. That's right. You know, you're going to think about child care Maybe when you're away from your children, how am I supposed to do this? But if you could bring your kids there, maybe that increases use. You know, it's just an interesting thought there. Um, so talking a little bit about, about pharmacies uh, or pharmacist role, and my students have, have been interested in this. And again, I, at some point when it opens, I'd, I'd love to be there. I always tell my students, I said, this is I want this to be my practice site. I'm very interested in this. Um, and as we've been successful in advocating for sort of remote pharmacist roles, both in harm reduction and in uh, medications through opioid use disorder um, and other sort of public health interventions that we just passed a law allowing us to prescribe PrEP and PEP. That's going to be a great thing. I'm sure that's available in New York. I'm sure it'll be available in Rhode Island. Why not have us, me working for the state or for you or I, provide that service and train students and have sort of a universal benefit there? Um, so that's just one thing I think of. But what do you think of the role of pharmacists either being at OPCs um, or what their role in harm reduction is? You know, we have a community model of all these things that they can provide, but maybe not a capitalistic model when we take that out. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe start with telling me what kinds of health professionals are at OPCs because maybe people don't know what kinds of folks are working there. Yeah, so around the world we see a number of different types of models of overdose prevention centers from real grassroots peer-led programs to more medicalized models that look more like healthcare, what we would think about as healthcare facilities or clinics. Some can even be integrated into hospitals Um, which is one thing that happens in France, for example. So the degree to which OPCs are interacting or looking like healthcare facilities kind of varies around the world. Hmm. But if we think about the more medicalized models, of which the one in East Harlem is one, where they have a lot of integration with primary healthcare, you typically see allied health professionals present, nurses, um, physician assistants, other providers, and certainly mental health care professionals. Um, psychologists, psychiatrists. So those are the typical types of medical professionals you would see Mm. at a more medicalized OBC model, in addition to those linkages and referrals to SUD treatment and other programs. I have to be honest that I'm not I'm not aware of a lot of OPCs which have formally integrated pharmacies or pharmacy-based services. And so I think that presents a huge opportunity for Rhode Island and other jurisdictions to potentially innovate and to do this to reduce barriers 
um, to access pharmacy services for people who use drugs. So I'd love to know your thoughts on this and whether you think it's uh, feasible and something that should be pursued. Well, I see. I think what I see is I see this as parallels to say you don't know, like you, I'm looking out your window here at the street, you don't know which one of those windows is a doctor's office. And you mm-hmm. can't typically just walk into a doctor's office and get advice or education or care or something that will treat whatever your condition is and the person to talk to. An OPC, a medicalized model, offers a lot of those things and offers referral to so you don't have to go to a social service office or you don't need to have a phone or you don't need to have to take a bus or maybe there's no public transportation to take you somewhere or you don't have your own transportation. So it's this sort of place-based brick and mortar kind of thing where you can walk in, you don't need an, op- an appointment, and there's a variety of things that you can get and you can walk out with it. That's right. That's and so right. the OPC, you talk about like referral to OUD. I'm really interested in saying if there's a pharmacist there and meeting whatever the laws are of the state or the country you're in, they could have a supply of the most commonly used medications, whether it's hormonal contraception, whether it's injectable prep. Like you, you can sort of take a, a like almost a public health pharmacy model, but they walk in they use drugs, they're monitored, and then you can directly offer services instead of saying, is now the time to go get other services? So right. Um, right now there's physicians and, and mental health professionals and things. A pharmacist may not replace those services, but be able to be a connection to sort of, I can give you vaccines right now. Yeah, right. And I know they right. did that in Europe at drug user health programs is how they effectively reach folks, is that here's a trusting place, they train folks to give vaccines, I have no problem with that. So I think it's a sort of at a place you want to provide all those things because while during the pandemic we saw telehealth be really important, maybe there's an integration of telehealth and pharmacy and sort of a, a critical supply of essential medications that people could get, right? You know, maybe they have a wound and we provide wound care, but maybe they really do need antibiotics. Okay, here we go. Pharmacist is going to talk to you. They'll counsel you. Right. And then they can provide remote monitoring or Maybe my question is, how often do people go to OPCs? Do they go mm-hmm. weekly, occasionally? Um, what What's your thought on that? That can vary a lot. You know, when right. you look at the use patterns, some people use them fairly infrequently when they feel mm. like they might be at particularly high risk for overdose, if they have a new supplier, if they're not sure about the product that they're receiving, or if they just left the correctional system, for example, they may say, you know, I feel like I could be at risk because of lower tolerance now, I'm going to elect to use an OPC. That's more common too with more stably housed folks who have an existing private safe place to use but may use an OPC when they feel like they're at particularly high risk. That's probably the rare circumstance. What is more common is more frequent use patterns, people with more severe opioid use disorder or substance use disorder accessing the services least weekly, daily, even multiple times a day in some circumstance. So it really varies. um, But at the end of the day, the service is providing a lot of touch points for people Mm -hmm. and building that rapport and gaining that trust over time, regardless of whether someone's using it daily or monthly. So within that mix, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, right? right? There's a lot of opportunities to engage and provide medications, vaccines, and other healthcare services. Yeah, and they can, again, the follow-up doesn't need to be with a phone if they're unsafe in a place and can't use the phone. You know, there's one of the things I'm studying and and publishing or submitting this week is the pharmacist's role in sexual assault care and comprehensive care Mm -hmm. and how, what kinds of interventions can we provide and whether it's vending machines with emergency contraception and pregnancy tests and HIV tests, 
you know, these are the things that we're actually doing at, uh, at URI with my students. Mm. And so that's going to be a research project to say, you know, is this needed? And I think that's the thing about New York. They open these OPCs, these sort of, and they got used. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. growing, right? Yeah. So it's the, if we build it, will they come? Or, you know, we're aware in Rhode Island is we have harm rush and vending machines. We built them and they are being used, yeah. right? Um, so clearly there's some need that's not being met. So the interesting thing would be to study a pharmacist there or some telehealth model um, and figure out how to do those um, connections. One thing I, I want to be really important of is that one of the terms for OPCs has been supervised injection facilities. Mm. But we know that people use drugs in all sorts of ways. Mm. And I know that part of our law and part of the regulations allow safer, and the design of Rhode Island's will include a safer smoking Area, do you want to comment on what's happening in New York or what you feel is different about that? Yeah, so they, you know, this is an important issue that um, in Rhode Island was really advocated as a racial justice issue as mm, well because right. we know that, um, you know, black and brown Rhode Islanders are more likely to uh, inhale substances uh, rather than inject them. Some of our research studies show that as does surveillance from the health department. So that alone suggests that in order to be equitable and to be as accessible as possible, these sites need to provide options for people to use substances, be that through injection, inhalation, or snorting, which is insufflation. Um, New York City does a similar model. Mm. There's an inhalation room in addition to the more traditional injection booths. But that's one reason why now we use the term overdose prevention center because it's more broad and comprehensive rather than supervised injection facility, um, which focused exclusively on the um, injection mode. So this is a great point, and I think for any OP, any jurisdiction that's considering an OPC in the U.S., something really important to think about particularly as we see continued introduction of fentanyl into the stimulant supply where we see now a lot of overdose risk um, among people who uh, smoke, you know, crystal meth or crack, for example. So this is critically important, and I'm glad you raised it. Well, I think it's also interesting, too, is that uh, advocates have recommended um, snorting or smoking as a safer alternative because you aren't as high risk of bloodborne uh, infections from uh, reusing syringes and things, even though they may provide syringes, they're still reuse. Um, but now it's almost more dangerous because they think some of the emerging data show that people are less likely to have naloxone or oxygen or when they're when they're smoking or insufflating, even though it provides you know, perhaps at least a majority of the same risk as injection, right? Um, so it's people don't perceive themselves at risk by smoking. They may have gotten the message that that's a safer way to use, but you still need OPCs to provide that service right. um, for all those folks. Well, uh, Brandon, it's been a fascinating conversation. This is great. Um, thanks so much for uh, devoting your time to this uh, to this issue. I'm excited to have to be the pharmacist at the OPC. I heard you say that, so I'm just telling the listeners. So <laughs> yeah. um, come join us. Maybe we'll have international visitors to our OPC next year. So. That'll be great. I hope so. Um, so the regimen sounds like uh, the regimen for OPCs is to make them comprehensive, make them tailored to geography, make them tailored to policies, uh, to be persistent and advocate for them for them, um, and to and that if you build them, they will come, and that is. 
the best way to reconfigure our healthcare system for the vulnerable and the marginalized, um, focusing healthcare on compassion and love. I love that statement. So um, be sure to follow us uh, at PharmD Pub Health on Instagram and Twitter. Turn on post notifications so you never miss an episode. Smash that subscribe button now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again.